0: Why do you do the things you do? Why do you not do the things you decide not to do? What goes into that decision-making process for you? Is it emotional? Is it logical? It's probably both of those. But it's also, in addition to emotional and logical, it's also ethical. In fact, most people believe that there's some sort of universal code of conduct that we should live according to. Most people believe that, and that there is such a thing as right and wrong. And even if somebody says they disagree with that concept, they still act like it's true. <laughs> even if they will say, no, there's no such thing as right and wrong, everybody just does they still act like that is true, and you'll find out why in a minute. And this code of contact is basically it's reflected in the laws and the customs of every nation in the world and pretty much every ancient civilization, as far back as we can track ancient civilizations, it's kind of a set of universal oughts uh, that we hold to. Sometimes we hold ourselves accountable, like I really should do this, I ought to do that. Okay? Uh, somewhere outside of you, there's this sense of ought to, uh, or I really ought to apologize. I don't want to apologize. I don't want to admit I'm wrong, but I was wrong enough. I ought to apologize. There's that internal sense that we have that or you're tempted to do something that hurts you in some way, or tempted to do something you know will ultimately hurt somebody else, and there's something that says, I ought not to do that. I ought to do this instead. As human beings, we just get that this is true. You ever have one of those words that you say often enough, and it starts to sound weird in your head? Ought is doing that to me right now, so I apologize, but it's just like, it just seems like a really weird word, and I'm going to say it a whole bunch more, so I'm going to be distracted. So there's this kind of that sits outside of us it's not mine it just is there and we know it doesn't originate inside of us because if it originated inside of us if it was our creation if it was our doing if it was our contrivance we would just tell it to shut up right I mean if, if we would just move on and we would change it if I wanted to do something but some internal compass that I came up with tells me it's wrong I would change the compass if it was my direction and I wanted to do something, I'd say, forget that. Compass is different now. But it sits out there and it condemns us when we do the wrong thing. And it encourages us when we do the right thing. And, and so sometimes we hold ourselves accountable to this universal sense of ought. But now, this is a truth bomb here. Even if we let ourselves off the hook, we always hold other people accountable. We'll let ourselves off the hook all the time for not adhering to this sense of right and wrong. But we always hold other people accountable, isn't that true? A set of universal oughts to which we hold others accountable. Even if someone doesn't even believe there is such a thing, there is no right and wrong, whether they think it's all internalized or just cultural or just part of the evolutionary process, even if you don't even believe that such a thing exists, the truth is you hold other people accountable to these oughts. Even when you deny them in your own experience. So what do I mean? Liars don't like to be lied to. I mean, a liar may say, it doesn't matter that I didn't tell the truth, but it's okay if I lie because I need to get my way, and it's part of my survival instinct. But whoa, 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 you can't lie to me. Everything changes. Somehow in these moments, the liars reach out and grab this external thing that we know is true, and and then they apply it to you. Thieves, I bet you knew this, they don't like to be stolen from. Somebody breaks in your house and takes stuff. Well, somebody breaks in their house, they don't go, oh, well, it's just how the world works. No, they're angry. They call the police. Thieves call the police. Did you know this? It's nuts. Cheaters. Cheaters do not like to be cheated on. I mentioned last week how some people are adamant that they they don't do guilt or they don't do shame. But they are some of the first people to guilt and shame others. So again, there's this kind of universal ought that sits out there and we grab it when it's convenient for us. And then sometimes we ignore it when it's more convenient for ourselves to ignore it. So there's a hypocrisy that Christians and non-Christians share in this. that kind of level the playing field a little bit. Here's the hypocrisy that we all share. We can't help ourselves. We cannot stop holding others accountable to an external standard that we often ignore ourselves. You want a great definition of hypocrisy? There it is. We cannot stop holding others accountable to an external standard that we often ignore ourselves. We just can't help it. We can kind of silence our conscience and get through doing the wrong thing personally. But when somebody does the same thing to us, we reach out there, grab that thing outside of us, and apply it to them. And this dynamic, this outside of all of us standard, it condemns all of us universally because it's there. Independent of you, independent of me, independent of anyone else in the world, this standard of goodness is out there and we know it's there, we feel it's there, we sense that it's there and we just apply it when we feel like it. And this shows us why the arrival of Jesus was such good news. It was such good news that people paid attention. It was such good news that people leaned in. A lot of people, their big question as it relates to Christianity is this, is it true? People want to know this. But for more and more people today, that question has become irrelevant because truth has become relative to people. I don't know how that happened, but truth, which is a pretty, either it's true or it's not, right? It's pretty black and white. It's A or B, true or not true. All of a sudden, truth has become, well, you can be true, and you can be true, and you can have your truth, and I can have my truth, and they can contradict each other, but we're still good because truth is relative to your own personal experience and your convictions. Somehow this happened, and I have no idea how it happened because it makes no sense whatsoever, but the question now for more and more people is not, is it true, but is it good? is it good? Is Christianity even good? More and more people are asking this question, and maybe you've even asked this question at some point. Maybe you're wrestling with that issue now. That's why we're talking about it, but here's the thing, and this was the main point of last week's message. When you hear news that's not good, when you get news that's not good, or you hear news that's not good, you hope it's not true. There's this instinct that kicks in that doesn't want that bad news to be true, and when you hear news that is good, You hope that it is true. You lean into that. And the amazing thing is this. When the birth of Jesus was first announced, it was announced as good news of great joy, and this is the part we can't begin to understand how unusual this was, for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. And the reason this was so unusual is, first of all, everyone was divided in Jesus' time, like we're all living in unity now, right? Yeah, division seems to be the part of the human condition that transcends time and culture. We will have factions, we will have different sides, and we will polarize ourselves no matter what's going on in the world around us. Um, But the thing is, in Jesus' time, there there was all sorts of divisions religiously there was divisions financially and economically socioeconomic status there was divisions uh, racially uh, part of your nation of origin uh, there's all sorts of different things that divided people and this announcement by the angels that it was good news that will bring great joy to all people And so here's the thing isn't it true that generally speaking good news for one person is bad news for somebody else You know, there's that sense of give and take. If it's good news for you, it's bad news for somebody else. If you got the promotion, somebody else didn't. So it's great news for you, but somebody else who was really hoping for that and counting on it, they didn't get it. $20 fell out of your pocket. That's bad. But somebody else found it. That's good. Bad news, good news. There's almost always a give and take, two sides to good and bad news. And the announcement of Jesus was good news of great joy for everybody. There was no downside to this. this. That was hard even for the people of Jesus' time to understand because generally the good news benefits one group or it punishes or it undermines the integrity uh, or the success of another group. So seriously, all people, which brings us to the question we're going to talk about a lot next week, so don't miss next week. If the birth of Jesus really is good news and great joy for all people, then why is there so much resistance? Why is there so much pushback to this really good news? Because again, when we hear something that we think is good or we're convinced is good, we want it to be true, we hope it's true, we look for reasons to believe that it's true. So if the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus to planet Earth is good news, why all the resistance, why doesn't everyone universally lean into this truth? And one of the main problems is, I believe... The original version has gotten so far away from our contemporary version, or maybe better said, we've gotten so far away from the OG version of Christianity. If the life and the message of Jesus doesn't strike you as good news, maybe you've never heard the original good news. If the life and the message and teaching of Jesus doesn't strike you as good news of great joy, and you may not even fully believe it yet, but if there's not something in you that just says, I don't believe it's true, but wow, wouldn't it be great if it were? If there's not something in you that would lean forward to say, you know what, at this point, I think it's a fairy tale. I don't know if we can trust New Testament documents, but wow, wouldn't that be amazing? If the message of Jesus doesn't strike you as something that you would want to be true, maybe you've never heard or you've never understood the original version. The good news of great joy for all people version. Because the original version was so incredibly, extraordinarily compelling, it was so extraordinarily worth telling that it was told. They shared it. They couldn't contain it. Luke tells us that many people endeavored to give us an orderly account of the life and teaching of Jesus. It was that good that they had to get out and tell it, which makes me ask the question for us today, If we fully believe that the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus was good news of great joy for all people, and we're not telling it, what went wrong? There's your guilt thought for the day. What went wrong? And I'm not going to park here for a long time because it's not the main point of the message today, but we need to be asking ourselves these kinds of questions if we want to be authentic in our faith. What happened? If we believe all of this is true and it's transformed our lives, why are we not telling it? Why are we not sharing it? If we want to be honest with ourselves, here, have you invited someone yet to be your guest for Christmas Eve service? To experience the good news that you've experienced? Start praying today for that person. Let's see God write some new stories this December 24. Now, one of the things that makes the good news so good is that with his message, Jesus basically leveled the playing field. That's what makes the good news so good, is that the playing, le- playing field went from this, where everybody was on different standing, everybody had different things going for him, to this. Nobody stood out. The message of Jesus was a disturbing, but appropriately humble reminder that we aren't so good. In fact, it was this message, none of us are good, That message from Jesus that disturbed the people that thought they were so good. The Pharisees and other religious teachers, they got so offended by Jesus' message because Jesus taught that none of us are good. And the people who think they're good are going to be incredibly offended by this message. And yet, it's the very part of this message that gave hope to the people that knew they weren't all that good. Right? For the people who were aware of the fact that they weren't so good, this was good news of great joy for all of those people. So what does it look like to have a level playing field? What does that mean? What does that look like? What does that mean for us? I want to give you a very practical example of what this looks like, and it's one that most church folk can relate to. In February of 2018, the end of February, Billy Graham passed away. And on March 2nd, his funeral was scheduled in Charlotte, North Carolina. And they invited 1,000 people to his memorial service, each of whom could bring one guest with them. As you can imagine, the who's who of the church world were invited to go to that. And I read this account from one of the pastors who attended that memorial service. And, and this, this pastor, you would recognize his name, megachurch pastor, he said there were dignitaries, there, there were famous journalists, everywhere you look there were people from all over the world, heads of state, it was incredible, who came to Billy Graham's funeral. Only a thousand people invited, and the best part of this was these were mostly all people who were big shots somewhere, right? These, this was the who's who. These were the important people who are used to traveling in motorcades, who are used to showing up in tricked-out Escalades with their crew, and they're people who would get out first with their sunglasses, you know, before they would get out. You know, we got people, we got security, and the beauty of this day was you couldn't bring your people. You could bring one people. That's it. And they showed up at this distribution center, which was like 20 minutes away from where the ceremony was going to be. And everybody has to go in this kind of warehouse area. And they had to stand around for about an hour and 15 minutes while they waited for buses to come pick them up. It was beautiful. So you got all these important people, and they can't be important because they're surrounded by other important people, and suddenly nobody's important. And then they put everyone in a waiting line, and they all got hoarded into buses. Everybody had to go to the... Herded, not hoarded, herded into buses. Everybody had to go to the back of the bus, fill up every single seat from back to front. You know, it's like you're in elementary school again, right? And these people haven't ridden a bus since they were in elementary school. And then they drive for about 20 minutes. They get out. It's freezing cold. They're miserable for an hour and 15 minutes before this thing started. And as this pastor looked at all these famous people, they couldn't be famous because there weren't any people for them to be famous to because everywhere they looked, there were people more famous than they were and more important than they were. Nobody was anybody special that day. I mean, you can be a big shot in some circle that you work in. They may be a big shot on some television station, but hey, you're not Billy Graham. So everything just leveled the playing field there. You may have a big church. You may preach to thousands each and every week, tens of thousands. But in 1973, you want to talk about big church? Billy Graham preached in Seoul, South Korea, And 1.1 million people attended. So let me tell you how big my church is. Yeah, um, Billy Graham showed up to preach. I don't mean they watched on television. Over a million people showed up in person at one time to hear Billy Graham speak. So you may be a big deal, but your funeral isn't going to be on Fox News and CNN and C-SPAN. You may be a big deal, but your body is not going to lie in state in the U.S. Capitol for people to line up all around the block to come pay their respects. Some people were better known than others that day. Some people were more famous than others that day. Some people had more followers than others. But on that day, everyone fell short of the glory of Billy Graham. Incredible story. But it becomes more incredible when we understand the truth of God's story in the Bible. Paul, one of Jesus' followers who was kind of the Billy Graham of his day, wrote this in Romans 3, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard even Billy Graham. No matter how good Billy Graham was, no matter how much better than you or me he lived, and it's kind of like those are the two, there's two people that everybody kind of says, well, you're no Billy Graham. You're no Mother Teresa. Those are the two people that everybody of our generation points to, right? They're the standard of goodness from humanity, but no matter how good they were, no matter how big a platform Billy Graham had, no matter how many lives were changed through his ministry, Billy Graham was a sinner, He didn't measure up. He was unable to help himself. Only Jesus could make the difference in Billy Graham's life. And ironically, the reason that Billy Graham was so incredibly well-known and respected and admired and followed was because he was aware of this, because he knew this. He knew he was nothing, and because of that, people wanted to know the good news of great joy for all people that he talked about. There was no pride in Billy Graham. He was absolutely humble. As big a platform as he had, he always pointed to Jesus. Let's talk about the Gospels for a minute. Peter was a fisherman that eventually became one of Jesus' followers. Peter was a good man, a businessman. He was a family man, had a good reputation in the community. And Luke, who thoroughly investigated all this stuff about the life of Jesus and his followers, tells us that in Luke chapter 5, one day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to, to the word of God. Okay? This is an amazing phrase right here. They were listening as he taught the word of God. But does it say as he taught the word of God? Is that what it says? No. They were listening to the word of God is what the Bible teaches us. This is a big deal. When we see the phrase word of God, we think the Bible. And this is way, 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 way before there was the B-I-B-L-E. This is way before that. And he wasn't teaching the law and the prophets here this day. He wasn't teaching what we know as the Old Testament. He wasn't teaching the Bible because the Bible didn't exist yet. He wasn't referencing other teachers before him. You see, after the resurrection, the people closest to Jesus realized, oh, my goodness. When we sat and listened to him teach, we were hearing the words of God. So Luke recognized that when Jesus taught, the people had the amazing opportunity. They were hearing not the Bible being taught. There's no Bible yet, not the Law and the Prophets. That's just the backstory. They were hearing the very words of God. And that's amazing. Anyway, so Jesus looks around. He sees the water's edge, two boats that were left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. This is the way that worked. They would, they would fish all night. You see, when the water was cool, the fish would come up to the surface. You could fish with the net, and you could haul them in. That when the sun comes up, the water heats up. The fish go down deeper. So they fish all night. They come in after fishing. They lay out their nets. They dry the nets. They get all the seaweed and the soda cans out of the nets, all those things. Then they roll the nets back up, stash them away, and then they sleep during most of the morning, and then they do it all again the next night. That was the life of a fisherman. So these guys have been up all night. They're cleaning and drying their nets. And then we see this. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats... Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. So Peter, Simon, Peter, has one of his nets cleaned and drying and rolled up in his boat, and Jesus says, hey, let's push out a ways. I'd like to get away from the shore a little bit, so I'll be able to see the people more. They won't crowd so much, you know. And so there's Peter sitting there, captive audience on the boat with Jesus. He can't leave early, slip out for lunch. He's sitting on the boat while Jesus teaches, There's Jesus teaching, amazing, you're listening to the word of God, and they don't know it at the time, and then Jesus finishes his message, finishes his sermon, and Peter gets ready to oar back over to the shore, right? He's like, okay, we're done here, and for Jesus to get out, and Jesus says, hey, Peter, take me fishing. And I don't know what Peter thought. Maybe he thought, hey, we already did that. We didn't catch much when we're supposed to fish, so this is going to be a complete waste of time. Maybe he thought, well, I've never taken a rabbi fishing. Maybe I'll have some good luck. Who knows? And then he says this, and we don't know what's behind this phrase, but it's pretty powerful what Peter says back to Jesus. Master Simon replied, we worked hard all last night and didn't catch a thing, but if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. Love that. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish and on the verge of sinking. So Peter made a good call. And somewhere within the process of all of this taking place, Peter looks up at this rabbi from Nazareth, and he realizes that something is going on. That something is different. And suddenly, Peter is overwhelmed with self-awareness. There are those moments in life, usually when we encounter God, where we become incredibly aware of just who we really are. See, I think a lot of times we can put the mask on ourselves and even pretend to ourselves sometimes about who we are, about what we're really capable of, about the things that we've done, and we can forget about it. We can push it to the side. But in that moment, everything was stripped away, and Peter realized just who he was. Suddenly, Peter began to see himself in a way that he had not seen himself before, and Peter is not okay with what he sees in himself. He's well-respected in the community, and suddenly that just didn't matter. In this moment, with Jesus in the boat, with all these fish, he's not going to have to fish for days and days and days now. Now he's ashamed, and he's let go of the net. And Luke, who probably got the story straight from Peter, said this, when Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, oh, Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. Jesus did, just performed a miracle for him, right? Gave him incredible income from all this fish. And Peter says, go away. Go away. Suddenly the fish and the fishing business and the crowd on the shore watching, all of a sudden that becomes inconsequential to Peter because his reality scale had tipped. And Peter was not okay with Peter anymore. To which we'd say, wait, Peter. Wait just a second. Get up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Peter, you haven't done anything wrong, dude. In fact, not only have you not done anything wrong, you did something right. You took Jesus fishing. First, you made your boat available so he could push off and teach from the boat. Then you took him fishing. You took him fishing when it was a waste of time. Your nets were already dried. You did the right thing. But if we asked Peter, he would have said, no, I didn't say I sinned. I did something wrong just now. I'm not here to confess a sin. I'm just telling you that in the presence of this rabbi, I became aware of the fact that I am a sinful man, that I'm not okay. And I just became more aware than ever of how not okay I really am. And then he said, Jesus, I need you to go away so I can feel okay about myself again that's what he meant when he said go away from me Lord what he meant was this I need you to go away so I can get back to feeling okay about myself I was fine with me I was fine with Peter until you showed up and then I love this Luke 5 10 Jesus replied to Simon don't be afraid that was his response don't be afraid he could have said it's true you're a sinful man in fact Peter let me tell you your greatest sin is still in the future Peter, you're about to see things that mere mortals long to see. And at the end of that journey, you're going to deny that you ever even met me. You're going to deny the events of this day. And that's why I've come. And that's why I'm here, to level the playing field. Because in the kingdoms of this world, it's all about power and prominence and prestige. But good news, Peter, good news. It's a new kingdom with a new kind of king. And Peter, I'm moving on here. But I'm taking you with me, and together we will introduce the world to the kingdom of God. Luke says, at that point, they pulled up their boats onto the shore. They left everything. They followed him, and we know the rest of the story. They changed the world. We're sitting here today because Peter left his nets and followed Jesus. And the journey begins... Peter's new story begins the moment he recognizes I'm good, but I'm not that good. And in your presence, I'm not just not good. I am a sinner, and I should not even be in your presence. And Jesus says to him, and he says to us, when we have that same moment of realization, when we get to that place of awareness, I know, I know. Don't be afraid. Now follow me, and we'll change the world together. You see what makes the good news so good is that we aren't so good what makes the good news so good is that we aren't so good we fall short of our own expectations we fall short of other people's expectations and we fall short of that elusive sense of ought in fact it's worse than falling short we hold other people accountable to what they ought to do and then we give ourselves an out what do you call that hypocrisy We hold other people accountable to this sense of ought, but at the same time, we decide there's an excuse to be made. There's a reason not to for ourselves. And then Jesus shows up. And suddenly, all the excuses burn away, and we realize what we're really like and who we really are. And he smiles, and he says, that's why I came. And let's be honest, our falling short, it's not always an accident, is it? Sometimes we fall short on purpose, and we call it a mistake. Well, she just made a mistake, and I'm thinking, well, she did it four times. Is that a mistake? Is there such a thing as a premeditated mistake where, like, you plan it out, and then you make the mistake? That's not a mistake, but we call it a mistake to lessen the blow, to make ourselves feel better, and Jesus says, no. A premeditated mistake where you hurt somebody and you plan to do something that ultimately hurts somebody, that's not a mistake. Making a plan to do something that completely disregards God's plan and God's purposes for your life, that's not a mistake. Jesus would say, look at me, that's a sin. When you hurt another person on purpose and then you do it again and you plan it and you scheme and you hurt another person or you hurt a company or you hurt someone you love either by accident or on purpose, that's not a mistake. A mistake is when you're doing math and forget to carry the one. A mistake is when you push the wrong button on the phone and you call somebody you don't know. That's a mistake. Jesus says, come on, let's just be honest. You're not mistakers, you're sinners. And yet we love to kind of distance ourselves from that s-word no not sin i just messed up I made a mistake it was an oopsie it's sin and suddenly the playing field is level and suddenly the good news gets even gooder paul shows up in the pages of history as someone who claims to be like one of the best people who ever lived literally paul makes these claims about himself in the bible He said, when it comes to the righteous way of living, when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to keeping the law, when it comes to keeping the law of Moses, when it comes to keeping God happy, I'm the best. I don't know any other way to put it. I'm like the best. I'm like the Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I can out-Pharisee all y'all. I'm so good. When I get to the temple, they're just happy to see me there. I'm so good. I'm a law keeper. I'm a meticulous law keeper and then he meets Jesus. Meeting Jesus destroys all of our misconceptions and forces us to see ourselves for who we really are. And do you know what label Paul gave himself after he met Jesus? This man, Paul, who was the best of the best, he said this in 1 Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. That's what Jesus does to you. He makes us aware of who we really are without the pretense, without the show, without the masks. All of a sudden, all of that is reduced to nothing, and we stand before God naked and ashamed, and Jesus says, I know, that's why I came wait, Paul, you're you're like the best person that ever lived. Now you're the chief of sinners. Now you're the worst of the worst. How can you go from being the best of the best to the worst of the worst? And Paul would say, because I met God in a body, because I encountered the resurrected Savior, and nothing was ever the same for me. And like Peter, there was just a sense of, please, just go away from me. Please. I am a sinner, and Jesus would say to Paul what Jesus said to Peter. I know, Paul, I know, but guess what? Follow me, and we're going to change the world together, and together we're going to introduce the kingdom of God to earth. Again, here's what Paul wrote. We just read these, we read these words a few minutes ago talking about himself. He's not wagging his finger at you when he writes, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Playing field, level. We don't just fall short of our personal ambitions and our personal standards. We fall short of others. And we definitely all fall short of that nagging sense of ought to, that we feel accountable to and always hold others accountable to. And the reason Peter fell at Jesus' knees was suddenly a little bit of glory leaked out of Jesus. The reason the Apostle Paul finds himself flat on his face and scrambling for words and trying to figure out what to say is because a little bit of glory leaked out and the God that we say we believe in, and the God that we say we serve, and his son who came to earth to pay for our sin, was a God of glory. And in the midst of that glory, and in the light of that glory, everybody falls on their knees, and the playing field is level. Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, the name, the awareness, the recognition of who he really is, when his glory is revealed, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's part of the good news, because you cannot get to where you need to be until you acknowledge where you are today. You cannot get to where you need to be until you acknowledge where you are today. And don't ever forget this. In these moments when people were so aware of their failure, those were the moments when Jesus leaned in and said, now get up, follow me, and we'll change the world together. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad side of the good news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God is the bad part of the good news. But listen to what he says. Here's the part that you maybe didn't memorize in Sunday school or maybe you didn't hear before, and it's the next verse. What we read was Romans 3, 23. Here's verse 24. Yet God, in his grace, freely, that's without cost, freely makes us right. He justifies us in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. That's the good side of the good news. We're not made right by doing right. We're not made right by promising to do right. The problem with promising and committing and all this is this. Promising to do better next time doesn't do anything about the last time. If I promise I will not break another window in your house, that doesn't do anything to pay for the one I broke. It doesn't do anything to fix the one I broke. So when you make someone a promise not to do something again, it doesn't do anything for last time. That is why you need more than just a second chance. Yes, God is a God of second chances, but God also repairs the past. That's why you need more than a commitment. This is why the playing field is level, because everybody needs a savior. Everybody needs someone who can do something about what's been done in the past. And I still stop in amazement when I read the word freely. God in his grace, freely. This is the differentiator between Christianity and anything else freely by his grace that is you don't earn it you're not good enough you've been freely freed you've been freed freely however you want to say it it's through the redemption the buying back the paying back that came through jesus the birth of jesus was good news of great joy for all people because we're all level in the eyes of god because we all share something in common. We all fall short, and we all have been invited to embrace the same solution to our falling short. Earlier, I talked about the Billy Graham Memorial Service, and I want to share one more story from that moment in time, and it was when his daughter Ruth spoke. Billy and Ruth Graham had five kids. Their middle child was Ruth as well, And here's what she said. I want to read you her words because there's an element every one of us can relate to from what she said at her dad's funeral. She said this, I have learned this week as never before that everybody has a Billy Graham story. And I have my own Billy Graham story, so I'm going to tell you that one. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce and I was devastated. I floundered, I did wrong, the rug was pulled out from underneath me, My family thought it would be a good idea if I moved far away and get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister and her family and near a really good church. And the pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower, and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, they're almost grown, and they don't know. They couldn't tell me what to do. I mean, I know what's best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo, and they said, honey, why don't you slow this down? Let us wait to get to know this man but they had never been single. They'd never been a single parent and they'd never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn and willful and sinful, I married this man on New Year's Eve and within 24 hours, I knew I had made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled because I was afraid of him and now what was I going to do? I wanted to talk to my father and I wanted to talk to my mother. It was a two-day drive to their home and questions swirled in my mind. What was I gonna say to my daddy? What was I going to say to my mother? What was I going to say to my children? I had been such a failure. And what were they going to say to me? We're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And then she said this, let me tell you, you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. (laughs) She continued, many of you know we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up to the mountain, I rounded that last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. And as I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and simply said, welcome home. No shame, no blame, no condemnation, just unconditional love. And I know my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, our pain, and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And then she said this to end it, and that invitation is open to all of you. No blame, no condemnation, just unconditional love. The world had no idea when a baby boy was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago that everything had just changed. That he would grow up to speak the words of God. That he would give up his life to provide a way for all people to be saved. That if we had only known, we might have responded the same way the wise men did in Matthew chapter 2. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Some of Jesus' glory must have been leaking, because their first response was to bow and worship. What is your response? How do you act when you encounter Jesus? When a cure is discovered for a particular disease, people who don't have the disease make a note of it. They think it's a good thing. They tip their hat to the discovery. But it's those who have been condemned by that particular disease who collapse in tears of joy. They were lost. They were hopeless. And now they are given new life. And every single one of us has been condemned by the spiritual disease we know as sin. And the cure for that disease entered the world 2,000 years ago, and we celebrate his birth by declaring it's good news with great joy for all people. Now, I don't know where you are. Maybe a year ago, a message like this would have bounced right off you. Maybe today, it's good news of great joy because you're more aware than ever of your need for a Savior. If so, welcome home. Welcome home. Would you bow your head with me this morning? God, I just want to begin by saying thank you. Thank you that you don't look at us in our sin and write us off or bring the destruction that we deserve, but you love us and you make a way where there is no way. Before I finish my prayer, while your heads are bowed and you're just praying this morning, talking to God for a few minutes, I just want to ask you if you're here this morning and something about this struck a chord in you because you, maybe for the first time are realizing who you really are and you're recognizing your need for a Savior. I want to give you that opportunity to respond the way Peter did, to respond the way Paul did, to respond like so many of us in this room have already done and say, God, I need you. If you're here this morning and you want to accept that love that God has for you and begin that life of following Jesus, I want to give you that opportunity. I want to pray with you this morning. So as everybody's praying for you right now, and if that is you, would you just lift your hand and say, yeah, Pastor Jeff, pray for me because I want to begin that journey today. I want a new story. I want God to forgive me. Let's pray. God, we're all aware of who we are. And God, it's such a great reminder to have of who we would be without you. So God, this Christmas season, as we remember the birth of Jesus, we also remember the life of Jesus, that he taught the very words of God. And God, you speak those words into our lives today. And so Lord, I pray that you would make us incredibly aware Of our need for a savior. Paul wrote those words, for all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. He wrote those words, I am, I am the chief of sinners. He wrote that a long time after he met you on the road to Damascus. He wrote that a long time later. He had been forgiven, he'd been set free, but he was always aware of who he would be without you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have that same awareness. Because, God, we don't ever want to go back to that prideful ambivalence to our sin. God, keep us focused on following you and introducing the world to the kingdom of God. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen.